Romans chapter 6, in verse 1. What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism to death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for preserving it. Thank you for promising us the author, your spirit, uh, would illuminate our minds. And Father, for those under the sound of my voice who have yet to experience new birth, who have yet to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and see the old self crucified and the new self taken over as the new creature in Christ, may they be granted understanding of their sin, May they be granted understanding of their total inability to reconcile to you. And may they be able to, by repentance and faith, embrace the Lord Jesus. And Father, for your children who may be struggling, who may be fighting the good fight and seeing many defeats, may they see the astounding, profound truth of union with Christ, dead to sin and alive unto him. And so, Father, we thank you and may your word become very clear to us. And we trust that you'll do this for the glory of your Son. For we ask for his sake and in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in Romans 6 now for some time. We will continue uh, to be in Romans 6 uh, for, uh, for a little while. And the reason why that is so is because I would, I would argue that Romans 6 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible to live the Christian life. If you want to understand the power behind the Christian life, if you want to understand what it means to walk in the freedom that Christ has given you above sin, where you're not enslaved to sin, then Romans 6 is your place. Romans 6 uh, unlocks what it means to live the justified life. Romans 6 is fundamental to understanding what it even means to be a Christian. And Romans 6 is also the place of joy. Of joy. If you understand Romans 6 and you start applying Romans 6 in your life, that's what makes Romans 8 1 come alive. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the key there is in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is all about. This whole section that we're looking at uh, is that of union, of union in Christ. This is a dominant theme in Pauline theology. Thomas Schreiner uh, said this quote, one of the most significant elements of Paul's Christology is his teaching about being in Christ. Union with Christ or participation with Christ is surely one of the fundamental themes of his theology, In quote. And one of the more understandable and, and, and very warm writing Puritans, John Flavel, said this, Quote, on this union, it is an intimate conjunction of believers to Christ by the imparting of his spirit to them, whereby they are enabled to believe and live in him, end quote. John would tell us in his first letter the very truths that Flavel brought out. In 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. It isn't so much that God sent his son to remove the wrath off of us so we would go to heaven. That certainly is a great benefit of being a Christian. But ultimately is that we would live life now in his son, through his son, to the joy of his son, that we would have an impact in the world for his son. 
And so as we look at uh, this passage and we find ourselves um, in verses 8 through 11 this morning, I want to kind of build up and bring back where we've been, been uh, at the last couple of weeks. And uh, last week in particular, we started out by looking at a life of conviction, a life of conviction. And we see that the Apostle Paul lived a life of conviction. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's extremely important that you as a Christian be a person of conviction, conviction that you would die for. Conviction that shapes every area of your life. A conviction about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, His authority, His care. That you'd have conviction about the Bible, that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, and that the Word of God is what shapes every area of your life to include the decisions you make. And that you would be convinced about and convicted about the priority of the gospel. That you know not only as a Christian the gospel saves you, but the gospel is what empowers you every day. And I would go as far as to say this. If you're not a Christian of conviction, you are not going to withstand the persecution that will come upon the church. If you're not a man or woman of conviction of the lordship of Christ, of the authority of the scripture, and of the priority of the gospel, is that you will compromise in some area of your life. And if you are compromising in one area, you have just compromised your entire life. Is that it has to be that of conviction. And the Apostle Paul lived with conviction. He uses the words in this text that we know, uh, that we have a certainty about these things. So let me just encourage you to develop a life of conviction. And you may say, well, how do I know I have a life of conviction? Well, the very things that I just mentioned will be uh, the underpinnings of your entire life. The Lord Jesus Christ and his authority, the scripture, and the priority of the gospel, not only for yourself, but in your family and in uh, your world in which you live. And then last week, we also looked at our union with Christ in his death, verses 6 and 7. And Paul would unfold this This understanding of our union in Christ and union in Christ in his death as well as what we will see today in his resurrection. And in verses 6 through 8, he wants to remind us, or 6 through 7, he wants to remind us what happened to us. As a Christian, you need to understand that you didn't become a Christian because you decided to, to, to take Jesus into your life. You became a Christian because Jesus took over your life. It's because you submitted to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You believed what he said about you. You understood that you were a sinner beyond hope and that you ran to him. And in his mercy and his grace, he gave you what you could not gain and that is new life. And as a result of such understanding the radical nature of what it means to be a Christian. Nowadays, you can mention the word Christian out there in our world today and you're going to get all kinds of weird answers like I was born in America. Or I go to a church. The radical nature of being a Christian needs to be recovered in the church of Jesus Christ today. And the radical nature of being a Christian is simply what happened to us. We were crucified with Christ. And that's what Paul would say in verse 6. Is it, know that our old self was crucified with him. What happened? We died with Christ. Secondly, who was it that was crucified with Christ? Our old self. Or what we were in Adam. And don't, don't misunderstand what you may read or hear from some. You're not walking around as two separate people. You don't have Adam and Christ. They're not competing with each other. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There is no shared life. The old self, the old Adam has been crucified, past tense. It's dead. And then Paul, and the third thing he would tell us as we looked at last week, why did this happen? What happened to us? We died with Christ. Who died, who, who died with Christ? Our old self. Why was this to happen? He says to make the body of sin powerless. And to free us from the bondage or the enslavement of sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you died with Christ. It means that the body of sin, the elements that cause sin, has been rendered invalid or powerless. And that you're no longer enslaved to attitudinal sins. You're no longer slave to sins of the spirit. And now we come to the fourth thing. And this is all new. This is where we pick up from last week. What is the fourth truth that we see in our death with Christ at the cross? We saw what happened. We saw who, who died. We saw why did this happen. And then if you look at verse 7. Which verse 7 is really a parallel of verse 11. 
And verse 7 is a, is a summary of what Paul would say happened to us in our death with Christ. He says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And it becomes the logical conclusion, does it not? Paul would start out in Romans 6 and say, wait a minute. You who think that you can be in grace and continue in sin, it's nonsense. You can't do that. And then in 6-7, in, in he says, why? Because you have died and you've been set free from that. Why would you continue in the very things that you've been set free from? Now, here's an important thing, and get this, because we're going to move on to the resurrection. Is that in our translations where it says, for one who has died has been set free, the original word is justified. Is justified. It occurs 15 times in this epistle. 25 times in the other parts of the New Testament. And with the exception of this verse and one other, it is, it is translated the word justified. Justified. Now think about that for a minute. It changes how you view justification. Because this is not an experience. Paul in verse 7 is not experiencing, is not writing of an experience that we're having. Remember, doctrine is not experiential. Doctrine provides the framework for the experiential. It's the theological truths that inflame the heart that make it experiential. And Paul is saying, for you have died and have been justified from sin. What does he mean by that? He means that something has happened to us when we came to Christ so that we are no longer under the enslavement or the captivity of sin. And what is he saying? You have been justified. That's what Romans 3.21 through 4.25 is all about. It's all about what God has done to us. Not what we have done in response to what God has done. That'll come on. That'll come on in the rest of Romans 6 and 7 and 8 and on. So when you look at verse 7, you'll see here that Paul is saying, because you have been justified, you have been declared righteous before God. All because of what Christ has done and given you his righteousness, you are justified so you no longer need to live under the bondage of that sin or any sin. And we could go back and say the very things that Paul would say in verse 1. From verse 7. He said, how, how can you possibly think that you can continue in sin if God has justified you, declared you righteous? And you can't be a Christian and say, well, I've been justified. I'm right with God. There's no condemnation. And then just continue to live your life under the direction of your self-will. You can't do that. You know what that is? That is a biblical contradiction. Is it one, you, you are justified, that means you've been justified by God, you've been bought by God, for God, and thus your ownership of your life has been declared His, and so you now calibrate your entire life, not out of morality, but out of gratitude for what He's done. And so then Paul would bring the conclusion of our union in Christ in His death in verse 7, so since you've died, since the old self has been crucified, since the body of sin has been rendered invalid, since you're no longer uh, enslaved to sin, then such live as such. But before he would get that, and that's verse 12, and Lord willing, we'll get there, you know, in, in the weeks to come. In verse 12, in verse 12 and 14, he talks about the practical outflowing of this. He talks about our members. But notice what he says, or what he doesn't say, I should say. He does not deal with our members or our instruments or us putting... Uh, sin to death in the practicality of the living the Christian life. He doesn't talk about practice till he understands our position. Till we understand what has happened to us. Friends, if you are battling sin in your life right now and you're not battling it out of a, a position of union with Christ, I would argue that you are fighting a losing battle. Is it the more that you try to put to death the very things that plague you in the strength of yourself, the more that that thing that you're trying to die is going to conquer you. You have absolutely no power whatsoever to conquer any sin in your life. I don't care whether it is a loose tongue, an unkind tongue, an impulsive, angry spirit, whether it's lust, whatever it may be. There is, you have no power on your own to suppress that or to render that invalid. It only happens when you live out what Paul is saying in Romans 6, and that is our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So let me save you a lot of tears and a lot of heartache. 
Don't try to kill what Christ has already killed. Don't try to put to death what has already put to, been put to death because of your union with Christ. Is it He is the only one that conquered sin and death. We're just the recipients of His victory. And until you start thinking that way, you'll never ever overcome sinful patterns in your life. And one thing that you will never do is you'll never overcome the mother of all sin, and that is selfishness. Because the only way that you can become uh, not focused in on your own life and focus on Christ is if you focus on the union that has occurred between you and Him in His death and in His resurrection. Because these are not just theological truths. These are relational, relational truths. And we'll see more of that as we come. So what we want to do now, we want to move, in, move into verses 8 and 9. Actually, 8 to 11. We'll cover that this morning. So we've looked in at our union in Christ in his death. That was uh, in verses uh, 6 and 7. And now we come to verses 8 through 11. We see our union with him in his resurrection. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 is actually a summary of verses 8 and 10, just like verse 7 was a summary of verses 5 and 6. Romans is one of the most logical of all the letters that Paul wrote. His arguments are sound. His arguments are linked to one another. He did a number on the Jews in the first three chapters. As he would, he would, uh, everything that they tried to say was contrary to the gospel. He came back and he, he methodically just shredded every argument that they had. And in this case here, it's very logical. Our death, verse 7, leads to you've been set free from that. So don't do it anymore. And then in verses 8 and 9, he's going to say the resurrection. So in verse 11, so then now you're alive to God, live such. And we want to break that down. But what I want you to see, and stay with me with this for a minute. I want you to see, and we're not going to read it again, but in verses 6 and 7, as you go back and you re- repeatedly read that, notice that the emphasis in verse 6 and 7 is what has happened to us. What has happened to us, our crucifixion with Christ, the body of sin conquered. In enslavement to sin broken. The emphasis of verse 6 and 7 is all about us in union with Christ's death, but the focus is on us. It's not a focus of self-esteem. It's a focus of death. It's a focus of union in death. But now in verses 8 through 10, and again, I won't read it again, but, but notice where, where the emphasis has shifted. Paul makes the emphasis in verses 8 through 10 all about Christ. He doesn't mention us until verse 11. Verse 8 and 10, we died with Christ. Uh, Christ being raised from the dead. You know, death no longer has dominion over him. It's all about Christ in verses 8 through 10. So you see the wonder of Paul's argument. He said, identify yourself in his death. But remember, it was Christ who rose from the dead. And you're in union with that. But the emphasis is the Lord Jesus. And is that not where the focus should be in the entirety of the Christian life? The whole entirety of the Christian life is a focus on the risen Christ. When you read Revelation 4 and 5, what is or who are the, who are the dominant features in the scene in heaven, in, in the greatest worship service ever penned? It is the throne and the Lamb. And if you go through, and I told you this before, read Revelation 4 and 5, read it over and over and over, and circle how many times you see the word throne, and how many times you see the word lamb. It will actually just blow you away when you see that the whole fixation is heaven, is not on the worshipers, it's not on our loved ones, it's on him. And in verses 8 and 9, where does Paul take us in, in regards to the resurrection? Not the direct benefit to us, but it takes us on him. And then we find that that is indeed the whole of the Christian life. In fact, the application of verse 11 is on Christ. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And notice the words, in Christ. In Christ. So if there's anything of value that you hear today, get a hold of this. That your whole life as a Christian is to be centered on your union in Christ. And not so much the benefits, but on the person you're in union with. 
It's a fixation on the person of Jesus Christ. I have found in my own life that I get all woe is me, and I find myself in deep self-pity uh, pits. Yes, I go there. And, I, and you know what happens? You know why I go to those places? It's because I get my eyes off of the risen Christ. And the minute that you start looking at your own circumstances, or worse yet, you look in here, is that you have just taken your eyes off the risen Christ. And when you look to the risen Christ, do you know what you find? You find joy. And you find peace. And you find all the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul wants us to understand that it is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our union with Him, that we find life. And not just life that takes us uh, past the portal of death into heaven, but it's life for right now. It's life for right now, this resurrected life in Christ. Well, let's take a look at this. We'll break this down. The first one we want to see then, Romans 8 through 11. Now we talk about our union with Christ in his resurrection. Now, I, I want to get a couple things out of the way. One, we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about what you do and what you don't do. We're not talking about, you know, um, uh, a, a church membership. That's important. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about the practicality of us being in Christ in his resurrection. And I want you to think about that for a minute. That is absolutely profound. That the creator would leave heaven, would come and become the form of, a, of his creature. That he would live 30 years, 33, 30 to 33 years in this life. That he would be crucified. That he would raise, be raised from the dead. He would go to heaven to prepare a place for his people. That he's going to come back and he invites us to be in union with him. Think about the radical nature of that. That is not a life of religious morality. That is a life of life-changing relationship. And the reason why the church in the early stages upset their world is because they believed that. And we live in a world today of soft Christianity. And if you were to look at me and say, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe that Jesus is my Savior, and I believe that I'm in union with Him, if you would say that to me, and then my, my question back to you would be this. What difference is that making in your life? What radical difference is that making in your life? And then you would look at me and you would say, well, what radical difference is it making in your life? <laughs> and I would say not nearly as much as it should. And you all would say the same thing. Because one thing that we find throughout the New Testament is that all the writers, they lived with an, they lived with an attitude of now, not yet. Now, not yet. Every writer writes about the second coming. Every writer writes with anticipation that Jesus was coming back. And let's take a look at this then. Union with Christ lived in the now and not yet. Look at verses 8 through 11. We see all aspects of life in this union with Christ. Now, if we have died past tense with Christ, so that's our past life, we believe that we will also live with him. That's a future tense that has eschatological implications. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will die, never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now verse 11, so you also must consider, that's a present tense imperative. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's present tense. So then we have in this short three verses, we have the whole of our life. We have our past, we have our present, and we have our future. But it's important that we understand this, is that the Christian life is lived now. I was talking to a dear sister prior to, and asked her how she was doing. And she said, in a very honest way, which I appreciated, I am weary. And I hugged her, and I wanted to say, me too. And I looked at her and I said, today, just today, this is what you have to live today, brothers and sisters. You have today. You don't have, yesterday is banked. You're going to see yesterday at the judgment seat of Christ. It's gone. Tomorrow's not yet. And Paul is telling us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our union with him in verses 8 through 11 is a implication or I should say an application for the future as well as for the today. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. 
I can't stress this enough, is that we are committed to sound theology in our church. We are committed to doctrinal living. Is that you have to know truth. But truth known is truth lived. And if we are going to unashamedly, and we do, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and as well as his second coming, if we are going to proclaim that, then we have to live that. And we have to live that in the context of the implications of our union with him in his death and his resurrection. Friends, if you're a Christian, you don't walk with an ethic. And you don't walk with a moral code of conduct. You walk with a living, resurrected Christ whose power of his resurrection is your power for the Christian life. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul here would also write about living the Christian life in the now and the not yet. Uh, My objective in this Romans 6 passage is I want every one of you that are Christians, including myself, I want us to daily think about our union in Christ. I want us to daily think about that we have died to all these sins that we find ourselves plagued by. And I want us to understand that because he rose from the dead and we rose with him, we don't have to give in to any of that. And I also want us to be weaned from the world. You know what weans you from the world? Living in the not yet. Living with your affections set elsewhere. Knowing that you're just a pilgrim. You're just a passing through. Look at Colossians 3 verse 1. If or since then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. See, we have a past tense. There's our crucifixion with Christ, raised with Christ. We've been raised with him. He says, thou present tense, seek the things that are above. See, here's here's the now not yet living. Paul is saying, since this has happened to you, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, present tense, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, present tense. Now notice here, you have died. That drives us back to Romans 6. What died? Old self. Old self has died, and your life, new life, is hidden with Christ in God. Do you understand that as a Christian, your life is already seated in the heavenlies? We're already there. Now, don't ask me to explain that. But we sure can live that. We can live that with the awareness that we are living now resurrection power in the not yet. That he who we're in union with is coming back. Now, I want you to notice the immediate application in verse 5 of Colossians 3. So Paul is telling us, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also appear with him in glory. You know, that sounds like some really high theology. You know, that we're seated in the heavenlies. And that, um, that doesn't mean we're going to go sit on a mountain somewhere and just wait for him to come. It doesn't mean that. Is it? But it does seem lofty. It's pretty lofty stuff. It's we're already there. Well, how do I bring the lofty truth of that down to my daily life? My daily life as a mom raising kids, you know, as a dad being ahead of the home and all the, the trials and with that. How do I bring it to, down to where I go to the factory every day and I'm surrounded by the ungodliness? How do I bring it into everyday life where we're surrounded by, by sin and, godly, and, and ungodliness? How do I bring it down to that? Well, look at verse, um, verse 5 of Colossians. Here's what Paul would say. Paul would say, listen... Because you're in union with Christ, because you died with him, you rose with him, and yet your life is, is not yet, it's there, it's not yet, well, this is what you do in the meantime. Put to death. Put to death, therefore. The therefore points us back to our union in Christ in his resurrection of Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and allows us to empower, be empowered to do what he says in verse 5. But do you notice how he always does this? He always tells us who we are or what has happened to us before he tells us what to do. That's important. Because if the order is reversed, if I would just stand up here and tell you what to do, then what I'm doing is I'm promoting religion that you cannot do. If I just get up here or Jonathan gets up here every week and we tell you a whole bunch of imperatives, go do this, go do that. And I've been under that type of preaching, maybe you have too, is go do this, go do that, go do this, go do that. You know what you're going to do? You're going to be discouraged And you're going to fail miserably, and you're going to drag yourself to church because all you're hearing is do, 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 instead of who you are, are, are. And Paul says, listen, because you've been raised with Christ, because you died to these sins, you now have the power to do Colossians 3, 5 through 10. But the order is critical. If I don't exhort you and myself to work work out the union I have in Christ... 
where's my power? To, here it is. Let me, let me ask you this. How many of you, and just ask yourself, we're going to read this list here. Tell me how many of you have struggled in any of these areas, and you've tried to free yourself from it on your own, and you found yourself uh, painfully failing. Look what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Every one of us. To some extent, every one of us have fallen prey to these things. And if you take away Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and we try to do those things, then we will not put them to death. We will actually inflame them. Because the more that you try to put to death sin in your life, the more that sin will laugh at you and the more that sin will control you. He goes, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And here's a whole list of some more things that you may have tried to do in the strength of yourself to put to death. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Anybody ever try to put those to death on the strength of yourself? Yes, you have. And yes, I have. And you may have won one or two battles, but you've lost the war. Because you can't. These are the old person. These are the old self. These are what the person is in Adam. What they do, inhabit, and they do constantly. And the only way to kill Adam is to go to the tree where Christ died. And look what he would say then in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. That gets us back to Romans 6. The old self has been crucified. Remember the old self? That's what he's saying in verses uh, 5 through, through 9. And now Paul would say, put on the new self. The new creature in Christ, which is renewed in the knowledge of the image of his creator. That is the new self that Paul is talking about in Romans 6. So do you understand then the implications of what it means to live in the now and the not yet? You must fix your mind, and we'll talk about the mind here in a minute. You you must fix your mind on the not yet, because that's what empowers you to live in the now. It's the not yet of knowing that you have died to sin, that you rose with Christ, that you're seated with Him in the heavenlies, and that all the resources of the Creator have been given to you because you're in union with Him, so that you can look at any besetting sin and you can say no. I don't have to do you. I don't have to obey you. And it's not because I'm super strong. It's because I'm super weak, but I'm united to him who is super strong. And thus in that union with Christ in his resurrection, what does Paul say in Philippians 3 in his his testimony? He says in Philippians 3 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Why would he want to know the power of his resurrection? Because he's languishing in a prison. And he says in chapter 1, I want to be able never to be ashamed or bring blemish upon the, the name of Christ. And the only way I can do that is by the power of Christ in me to keep me from complaining, to keep me from you know, drawing attention upon myself and, and, and away from Christ. So he said, I want to know the power of his resurrection because Paul knew that the power of the Christian life is in the power not of Christian conduct, but it's in the power of the resurrected Christ. And friends, that's what union with Christ does for us. It enables us to live in the now, not yet. Let's go back to Romans. Romans. For if we have died with him, we believe that we will also live with him. So that we know that Christ being raised from the dead will, not, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So Paul has established a future tense the, the not yet, as well as the now tense in the, in the now experience of being crucified and risen with Christ. But I want you to look at the second thing in verses 9 and 10. We get a glimpse of the gospel. We get a glimpse. We get a glimpse of Christ in this earth. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead, that happened in history, will never die again. Now here's the key thing, death no longer has dominion over him. When Paul says that death no longer has dominion over him, it did have dominion over him. Death did have dominion over Christ. I'm I'm not being heretical against his deity. In his humanity, let's remember this, that when Christ came, he came on a mission. And when Christ came, 
He came to die on mission. We die because of consequence. There's a difference. Is that Christ comes on a, he was born to die on mission. We are born to die because of consequences of sin. And so we see that Christ himself was, was on a mission. He came with a mission mindset. His whole life was lived on divine mission. He says, when Paul said, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. This is the gospel being played out. Is that Christ comes knowing all along, even as a boy in the temple, he knew that he must be about his father's business. So all through life, Christ is driven by this mission mindset that he came to be under the dominion of death, knowing that he would conquer death. Friends, that's why you have to constantly, when you look to Jesus, and there are these liberal theologians, there's these liberal people that try to make Jesus some good teacher or some soft religious leader who has no wrath or to try to make him some moral example or try to make him some good teacher. And I'm not going to quote C.S. Lewis. You know the book from Mere Christianity. Besides that, Jonathan did it two weeks ago. So... But the reality is you must constantly remember why Jesus came. And you must do that on a constant. Because are we supposed to conform into the image of Christ? Absolutely. Are we supposed to be Jesus to one another? Absolutely. But friends, don't see Jesus. Don't see Jesus and and your responsibility first to him. See Jesus in the compassion of his mission. See him coming as he did, coming on a mission of death. Yes, that would lead to resurrection, but let's face it. He lived a life as the man of sorrows, and he lived a life in constantly aware that he was under the dominion of death. And what those verses, uh, verses say us, verses 9 and 10, it tells us that Christ came, and what did he do? He conquered sin's consequences, both its power and its penalty. You know that, but I want you to remember that. Is that Christ come, came on a conquering mission that had to include death. And here's the great, the great truth about this, that this death is irreversible. I should say the resurrection is, is irreser- death is no longer a dominion over him. Neither is d- death a, a, a dominion over us. He, because he died over to death, we died to death as well. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that Christ came that he might destroy the power of death that the devil has. Friends, outside of this room, in your neighborhood, and maybe even in your unsaved family members, and in your co-workers, you have people that are absolutely petrified about death. And we have, I think we've done a, a poor service. We've tried to soften death. Well, they've passed away. Or worse yet, even non-believers, they've gone to a better place. There's no more suffering. They're done suffering. I've done a lot of funerals in my, in my time, a lot of funerals, and I've done uh, funerals that have not been very, very uh, happy. Uh, they've been, actually, they've been absolutely just so sad, it made me sick leaving, knowing that the population was largely unbelievers, knowing that the, that the deceased had died in a state without Christ, the best I could know based on what I got. And that just absolutely just rips your heart apart when you have unbelievers who are holding to a false hope that there is, they're in a better place. They're no longer suffering. And there's not a single word of Jesus Christ in those conversations. And I want to encourage you. We talked about in our Sunday school, our high school class, we talked about evangelism. And we talked about evangelism from the standpoint of creation. It's a great place to go. Is, is, is talk to people about, about creation and let it lead it into the creator and lead it into the savior and such. You know, another great thing that you can do to talk about people is say, well, I don't know how to begin conversations. You know, well, one, become a friend of sinners like Jesus. That's a good start. Is that develop relationships, redemptive relationships. But then the simple question, we've used this, I've used this for the young guys we play ball with. I've used this, I've asked these guys, say, hey, I got a question for you. So what's that? said, so, uh, what do you think about death? Well, that's kind of a morbid. No, not really morbid. You know why? Because we're going to die. And guess what? You're going to die too. 
it's a great place to, because everyone has eternity in their heart. And so everyone, you know, is going to have to, if, there, if, if there's any reason whatsoever, they're going to have to say, wait a minute. And almost everyone that you talk to has attended a funeral. And so use death as a, as a means to open up a spiritual conversation. And then you can go to Romans 6. And you can say, I know one who death no longer has dominion over him. Because he came on a mission. He came on a mission to destroy death. And friends, there's not a single religion, and I'm hesitant to use the word, there's not a single religion or any cult or anything out there that has the answer to death. It certainly isn't reincarnation. It certainly isn't, well, you're just going to cease to exist. And so use death and go back and look and see how Christ has conquered in his life. He came and the scripture says that sin or death no longer has dominion over him. So we see Christ came on a mission, a mission to conquer death, to conquer sin, to conquer power. And friends, you and I are in union with him. So we need not fear death. We need not be afraid. Because you know what death is for the believer? It's just a portal. It's a portal into true life. Now, I'm not diminishing the, uh, the fact that we may be a little, I mean, I mean, we haven't done it before. I mean, so there is that. But the reality of it is, is we can go to Romans 6 and say, I don't have to be afraid. Because he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, I rose with him. But I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 10. Here's another side. We saw Christ's life in earth. It was lived under the dominion of death on a mission. But notice in verse 10 where he is now. He's in heaven. For the death he died, he died to sin once. Died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What does Paul mean? Thomas Manton said, quote, Christ's resurrection was not a return to a single act of life or life for a while to show himself to the world and no more, but to an immortal, endless state, end quote. Do you know what Christ is doing right now? Well, you know, for the believers, I'm not, I don't want to talk about what he's doing for us. He's praying for us. You know what Christ is doing right now? Not only is he ruling over all the nations and all the affairs. So, hey, listen, don't worry about what's happening in the world. The king is still on the throne. And he's still ruling. And I may not understand all the chaos and how he's got it working out, but he is. And there'll be a time that he's going to say, Enough. And like he closed the door on the ark, he's going to bring the curtain down on human history and all this nonsense and folly that is in our world, he gets the last word. And so, but what's he doing right now besides all those? He's enjoying fellowship with his father. He's enjoying fellowship with his father. He lives to God. Paul, Paul would say he lives to God. Well, what's he doing? He is enjoying what he prayed for in John 17. Now, I, I, I'm harping on this because I, this is so important. I want, you to, I want you to think often of the gospel. And I want you to think of, of the love of God the Father that sent His Son. And I want you to think of the love of the Son that was willing to come. And I want you to think what the Son gave up to come here. Is this, this wasn't, I mean, if, if Jesus could have come as a baby in a manger and immediately been sacrificed, the perfect Lamb of God, and there would have been, but he didn't. He lived a life, a miserable life, a, a life of, of misunderstanding, a life of persecution, a life of burden. He lived that life so that he would identify for us in our life. But let's understand what he gave up to come. He gave up a fellowship, of Trinitarian fellowship, that he knew from all eternity the bliss and the joy of that, and he gave it up. And why did he give it up? So we could have it. So we could have it. He gave it up so that someday we are going to bask in his glory, John 17, 24, and we are going to be forever satisfied in the fellowship of God, never coming to the end or the bottom of the well of his endless love. It will never end. And so we have here where Paul says, for he lives to God, Jesus goes back, he prays, glorify me in your presence, which I had with you before the world existed. John 17, 4 and 5, Jesus prays to his Father to restore the glory, the glory of fellowship that I had before the world existed, but get, get a hold of this. 
He's asking for that glorification to now include his human nature. He didn't have it before. All through eternity, when does he become man? He becomes man at the incarnation. He's going to be forever encased in human flesh. And he's saying, Father, glorify me with the glory I had before, but now glorify me not only in my divine nature, but also my human. And friend, how does that apply to us? Verse 10. Verse 11, verse 10. How does it apply to us? As the Lord Jesus was on a mission to die for sin, one of our missions, and I'm not dismissing the mission of the gospel, and I'm not dismissing the mission of conformity to Christ. But do you know one of your key missions in the Christian life, and one of my key missions in the Christian life, is to practice Romans 6 and develop a life of holiness. Develop a life of holiness. As Jesus came to die for sin, we live now to die to sin. And so that it no longer has dominion over us. And that we grow in more and more in the likeness of the Lord Jesus. And if you want to have a great impact on your, your, your people around you and where you're at in your, uh, um, in your spheres of influence, if you want to have the greatest impact, then get a hold of what Jesus is enjoying right now. Get a hold of fellowship with God, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because God has not only sent us on a mission of the gospel, a mission of conformity, but just like Jesus now enjoys fellowship with God, you and I are to enjoy fellowship with God right now, in the now, looking to the not yet. So see Christ in verse 10 and 11, he provides for us the example. And the example is to live life on mission. He dies to sin so that we'll die. No, he dies for sin so that we'll die to sin. And that we would enjoy fellowship with God. Are you enjoying fellowship with God? Are you enjoying his presence? Are you enjoying reading his word and discovering more and more of the love of God for you? Or has your Christianity just become stale and just kind of going through the motions? Verse 11 says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And the word consider, it means to reckon. It's a word of mental exercise. It's not means you're feeling God all the time because you're not. It means that you're renewing your mind. You're renewing your mind on what has happened to you. And what has happened to you in Romans 6, 1 through 11, you died with Christ. You rose with Christ. And you rose with Christ so that you would be on a mission. A mission, yes, of the gospel. And a mission of conformity. And a mission of becoming so like him that people around you notice that you're not like them. Not that you're some religious zealot, but that you become more and more like the loving Jesus, the gentle Jesus, the authoritative Jesus. And people start looking at you and say, why are you different? And you say, well, let me tell you about a book I'm reading in the Bible. It's called Romans. Oh, really? Yeah. It talks about Jesus coming to earth and dying for what's wrong with our world, sin. And then he rose from the dead so that you and I wouldn't have to be enslaved to this anymore. So the reason why I'm different than you are not because I'm religious, because I go to Quinesa Baptist Church, though you should come. You know, no, I'm different because Jesus rose from the dead and I'm in him. And he has given me a power to live above the things that still slave you. And he will give you the same power too. Do you know what that is? That's the way to be gospel witnesses. It's to make it practical, make it practical, make it all about Jesus. So, there's more we could say on this, but we won't. Um, let's, um, let's just consider now these things. Romans 6, 1 through 11, and we'll look next week, 12 through 14. We'll look at more of what the implications of this. But it's extremely important that you understand what it means to be a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is that you are in union with the living Christ. That when he died on that cross, you died with him. And that when he rose from the dead, you rose with him. And you rose with him, not that you would remain like you are, but that you would walk in verse 4, the newness of life that gives evidence to the world around us that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead. And our responsibility is to get as close to him as we can, understanding this union. And that you're not trying to please him by your conduct. You're trying to get so close to his heart that you don't have to worry about your conduct. Because the closer you are to him, I would, I would even go as far as say this. You delight yourself in the Lord and you seek a close fellowship with him, then go do what you want to do. You will not go and sin. 
you will not, you will not be what these guys say. Oh yeah, grace, it abounds, it goes to sin. No, you won't. You know what you do? You'll hate sin more. The closer you get to understanding that you died to sin, that you rose with Christ, and that you're in union with Him to live the now, not yet, your influence for Christ will increase. It will increase to the point is where you enjoy Him more, and in enjoying Him more, you even serve Him more. Not because you have to, but because you can't help it. Because you fell in love with the one who you're in union with. The one who died, the one who rose, and invited you and gives you the opportunity to partake of that union. And if you're not a Christian today, and you're trying to be religious, let me tell you, stop it. And if you're trying to get God's favor by, by coming to church, stop it. You get God's favor because of Christ and Christ alone. You run to Christ And you ask God to give you faith. And you ask God to grant you an understanding of what it means for him to die for you, rise for you. And he will give you because he takes more delight in saving sinners than any of us ever will. Open your heart to him. And Christian, if you're struggling with sin, certain sins, a couple things. Number one, you might be ignorant of your union in Christ. That's it. Or number two, you might find yourself running to the pleasures of sin and not exercising the proper mindset of being in union with Christ. As a Christian, you don't have to sin. We always sin by choice. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, and thank you for our union in Christ. Please help us to know more and more what it means to live in the now, not yet, to understand that we have died with Christ, that we have risen with Christ, and that we can live above the circumstances of life because of resurrection power. And help us not to be afraid of death, knowing that it has been conquered by the missional life of Christ. And we find ourselves also on mission. Mission to become more and more like the one who has put us in union with himself. That would enhance the message of the gospel because people see the gospel in us. Father, may we also see the power of the resurrection in defeating besetting sin that no child of God needs to be enslaved anymore. We've been set free and help us to see it's a finished work and it's not our work. We thank you, Father, for loving us. We thank you for your goodness. And if there's someone here who's yet to come to Christ, please draw them. Let them cry out uh, for him. May you bring new birth to the unsaved. In Jesus' name, amen.